how does a judge objectively draw the line between a reasonable contribution to public discourse about whether it be gay marriage or whether it be transgender operations versus a contribution that's likely to incite hatred. There is no, there is no way, there's no objective way to draw that line. So it will fall back on the subjective preferences and ideological preferences of judges and prosecutors. And that's where you're opening the door to ideological and political domination. Investigative journalist, you're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for rejoining us here. Hour number two, hour number two, and as... As we said before the break, uh, we're going to be changing gears here. We're going into Europe now. We're going to pivot towards uh, the European Union, more specifically the Republic of Ireland within the EU. And uh, some of you may be aware, may not be aware, there's a piece of legislation uh, It's making its way uh, through the Irish Parliament uh, regarding hate speech. And this is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, what it entails is really unbelievable. You'd have to read the legislation to be- to believe it. Uh, you might want to drop that in the uh, the chat room. I'm giving a signal to everybody in the TNT chat room. If you find the the piece of this, there's some good tweets there by Keith Woods uh, and some other Irish bloggers uh, up there uh, on Twitter. But you can find a few interesting stories on this. We discussed it over the weekend on the Sunday Wire. Our next guest is a uh, political philosophy researcher at the University of Navarra in Spain. His name is David Thunder. He's joining us on the live link right now. Hello, David. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I hope you're doing good. And I've been watching some of the material you've been putting up. You've been commenting on this story, David. And I know you're from Ireland. So, of course, this is uh, of great interest and also concern for you, Uh, obviously, from a distance, uh, looking back at at Ireland and thinking what happened uh, to society that they would be able to pass or want to pass legislation like this first of all uh welcome to the show david and then what what are your first impressions when you heard about this story well uh, to be honest i was quite shocked um because this is probably one of the most radical pieces of hate speech legislation in the western world um i mean essentially what it does is it criminalizes potentially criminalizes the mere possession of a text that could be deemed offensive I'll just repeat that because some people may not believe that's possible. It criminalizes the mere possession of an unpublished text that could be deemed offensive. So, so for instance, it could be like, say, if I had it on my phone, a mem uh, about uh, the trans issue, which a lot of people are tweeting about. There's a lot of satire as well, as you'd expect with anything controversial. There's going to be a lot of satirical material. There's going to be a lot of critical material as well. Um, with that, do you think that could qualify potentially as offensive? I think it could potentially qualify. Another example would be supposing if I were to email a friend a draft of an article that I was considering potentially publishing in the future, and my friend reported me because that article was critical of, say, transgender operations for children, um, and therefore could potentially incite hatred towards the trans community. Um, I mean, the, the, the essential the problem here is, of course, that the, the idea of incitement to hatred is entirely subjective. It's extremely difficult to be objective about the concept of inciting hatred. What does that even mean? And um, I mean, almost any negative commentary or critique could potentially incite hatred. 
So it's a very, very sort of vague uh, catch-all category that really is in the eye of the beholder. So, so in terms of the, 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 what they call gender-affirming uh, surgery, very, very controversial. There's been you know, programs made about it, even by mainstream media, uh, mm-hmm. documentaries. There's a lot of stuff written about it. A lot of, campaign, a lot of parents are campaigning on this. So even though you're, you're advocating for the you know, protection and welfare of children, but, but the authorities could translate that as a potential hate speech. Yes, because the the basis of hate speech laws is fundamentally flawed and is against the rule of law because essentially it rests on an emotional response. That is to say, it basically rests on the potential emotional response of my audience to a piece of text or to a statement. And um, there's nothing intrinsically ethical or objective about an emotional response. The fact that somebody might have a hateful response to a text is something I don't control. And so I shouldn't be criminally liable for the emotional responses of readers to arguments that I put out into the public sphere, let alone arguments that are sitting on my computer and and are never published. Well, that's the basic tenet of free speech. The whole concept is um, it's it's protected speech, not, not for speech that everybody agrees with, but specifically for speech that people you know, might find offensive or that you might not agree with or that might be controversial. That, that is what it's for. This is what, in a free society anyway, or a Republican form of government, which is what Ireland has a, uh, a constitutional republic, uh, that's what it's for. That's why we have uh, free speech protection. It's for that type, that specifically for that type of speech. When you take, if you take that away, David, where does it end? Well, I completely agree because um, basically, if there are no strong emotional reactions in the public sphere, it means the free speech is dead. Um, but basically, uh, when people engage in free discourse, uh, you know, emotions can run high and people can have a, a wide variety of emotional reactions to what is said. Now, if you stifle free speech, and if you try to have a, a public sphere in which there are no emotional reactions or no strong emotional reactions, no, no negative reactions, then what you're going to do is you're going to drive speech underground or you're going to drive the emotional responses underground. And you may even feed into racist uh, kind of movements because you can't remove, you can't regulate and police morality through the law, that kind of morality. Um, you have to trust citizens to express themselves and you have to gently cultivate an atmosphere of respect. But you can't force citizens to shut their mouths when they have unpleasant things to say or things that might possibly offend somebody. Um, that certainly is not uh, the meaning of a free speech regime. Yeah, because, like, for instance, uh, we normally in society, you know, we if through discourse you kind of society collectively in the, all the different ways, the different forums, the media, uh, public forums, physical speakers corner, you burn off the toxicity of certain st- st- topics. In other words, they, it comes and it goes, but then it, it's sanitized 
through the sort of public light being shined on it, the, the discourse that comes, the arguments, and maybe even condemnation against people if they are legitimately extremist against, let's say, racial groups or uh, religious minorities. And, and that's part of the process that comes through the, the public discourse. But when you start to put a clamp on it, because this is really thought policing at the end of the day, because it, it's almost like the, it's so arbitrary, isn't it? That that's really what they're doing is they're they're policing even your your thought before it. Yes, comes. yeah. I mean, and I think the word you use, Patrick, arbitrary, is very important here because essentially what this law does is it gives special privileges to certain groups and certain individuals who are protected from, um, let's say, from hate speech or for, from speech that could possibly incite hatred towards them. And, and they'd be groups like, say, uh, race, uh, color, nationality, religion, national or ethnic or origin, gender, sex characteristics, sexual orientation and disability. If you belong to one of these groups, then the idea is that a speaker who comments on you, your life or your group and to, you know, a judge deems that that comment could incite or would likely incite hatred towards that group, then um, then you could be prosecuted for what you've said. But 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 this is this is this creates a kind of inequality in the public sphere because if um, if for example someone from the trans community accuses me of being a transphobe of being regressive of not belonging in the public sphere, I cannot prosecute that person for hate speech against me because I don't fit under one of the protected categories. So it creates this completely unequal playing field in which some citizens are protected from robust criticism and others are not. Um, I don't know if, I, if that's clear enough, but there are certain protected groups. And if you belong to that group, then supposedly you have certain special privileges in public discourse. I'm reading the text of the of the law here, and it's protected characteristics. So they and yeah. it, they're and they're not. It's almost like this list could be expanded arbitrarily. They're they're not super specific because they leave the they leave it a bit open ended in there. They don't like it's mm. not a fully comprehensive list. So so the the characteristics are protected, but the speech is not, and that's the fundamental difference. So I mm. mean. It, I, I just see this as completely, there's no end uh, to this in terms of, this is beyond the slippery slope, uh, David. This is like, uh, you know, I don't know that this could go, this could seep into uh, education. This could, it's definitely the mainstream press. Uh, I don't know where, what about in court, uh, other institutions? Yes. I mean, yes, it, it, it's a corruption of law and it's a corruption of um, democracy because what it does is it opens the door to um, ideological and political domination using the instrument of law. And why is that? It's because this, this, this bill, what it does is it, it, it defines in a very vague way this, this offense of inciting hatred. Um, and who knows what that actually means in practice, right, to incite hatred um, and how is that different from, say, fair comment or, say, you know, a fair comment on a public issue? Um, a judge has to decide, essentially, whether a given text is simply a reasonable contribution to public discourse or is uh, a kind of hate-inciting um, contribution. 
Now, what, where's the line? How does a judge objectively draw the line between a reasonable contribution to public discourse about whether it be gay marriage or whether it be transgender operations versus a contribution that's likely to incite hatred? There is no, there is no way. There's no objective way to draw that line. So it will fall back on the subjective preferences and ideological preferences of judges and prosecutors. And that's where you're opening the door to ideological and political domination. So this, this could absolutely be a, a tool for state, uh, state intimidation, uh, state harassment and political dissidents, for instance. And there's a lot of controversial stuff going on in Ireland. They just got out of, uh, you know, two, two and a half years of absolute COVID authoritarianism and the vaccine mm. passport issue. I mean, these are really divisive, unprecedented things that, uh, you know, were states clashing with people's rights. And, mm. and, and they're really kind of op- people openly castigating, quote, the anti-vaxxers. Then you have this immigration issue, which is very contentious right now uh, in mm. Ireland, potentially explosive um, politically. And, and, you know, the solutions are invariably going to be in, in the public discourse, but not in stifling the public discourse. What, what are your thoughts on the current state of Irish politics? Well, I think there's one fact that stands out, and that is that this particular piece of egregious, this egregious attack on free speech, one of the most radical pieces of hate, hate speech legislation in the Western world, it met with 14 dissenting votes in the lower house of the Irish Parliament, in Dáil in the lower, lower house of the Irish Parliament, out of 160 members, 14, one four, 14 voted against this piece of legislation. That tells me that our political establishment tells me a few things. One is that they have no conception of the value of freedom. And two is that they are completely out of touch with the people because I don't believe for a second that the vast majority of Irish people are gung-ho with the idea that somebody can confiscate my computer or can arrest me because of something that I'm sitting on my hard drive. I just don't believe that. I don't think these representatives are actually representative. I think that the the legislature has been radicalized and that, of course, to some extent, it it reflects the voter voter sentiment. But I believe that political elites, not just in Ireland, but in other countries, have become increasingly disconnected from ordinary people and no longer represent uh, popular sentiment and popular opinion. And I mean, look, Trump is a is a very controversial figure, but the fact of Trump's election, irrespective of what people think of him, is a proof that many Americans were also profoundly alienated from the political establishment. And they turned to a wildcard candidate as a way, in part, of registering their, their discontent with the political establishment. Well, and well, this is what's happening in Ireland. In Ireland, we don't have this populist, as populism, it doesn't seem to be taking off in the way it has in other countries. But I think it's just a space that we have to watch because the establishment is out of touch. Well, I saw your Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadka, uh, was challenged by a member of the press. You probably saw this clip, David, and uh, there was a public consultation about this piece of legislation. And uh, Varadka comes up to, to the press, who was challenged on this. He said, and he's saying, what, you know, the, overwhelmingly the public consultation is against the legislation. And he says right back to them, well, you know, uh, the, the public consultations, not everybody takes part in them. It's usually 
campaigns and activists, and they're not really representative of the of the broader public opinion on this. But actually, that's what he said, David. But I look at this RTE poll here from March of 2022, and, and specifically, that's a mainstream poll. That's your BBC equivalent. And, it's, and they ask people, what do you think about this type of legislation? And only 22% of the Irish public said they were for it. So that's yes. a total inversion of the the vote in the lower house, which I think was what was it uh, one ten uh, four fourteen against. So there's like mm. a complete disconnect of the public and then the parliamentary Ireland. Yes, it's extraordinary, and um, I mean, as I mentioned before, I do think it's interesting that we haven't had an anti-establishment populist movement. At least populism has not been successful has not really taken off in Ireland for some reason but I but I think that it's only a it's it's kind of one of the things that you think just is going to happen sooner or later because there's a vacuum a vacuum in our politics or in our political establishment um, and as you know it's very clear 70 percent of those submissions on on this law were against were opposed to this this hate offenses bill and then you see an overwhelming majority of parliamentarians just sort of nodding it through. Um, uh, so what does that suggest? That suggests that there is there has been some kind of radicalization of our political representatives. And I would say a radicalization from what, broadly speaking, we could call as a militant left, an extreme and militant left that is uh, active across the Western world and is trying to push these sorts of identity politics um, in many different countries. And I think that's exactly what's happening in Ireland, that small leftist lobbies, relatively small leftist lobbies, uh, not representative of the rest of the country, are, for whatever reason, have access to our politicians and are influencing them um, and are co-opting the legislative process uh, in some way. And, and what, what, why can't a populist uh, movement or a candidate or a new party emerge? I mean, is it because I was looking at the, the history of the uh, Irish I and mean, the big problem here in Britain, David, is that you have the first past the post system. It almost precludes uh, an insurgent party entering uh, into they don't have proportional representation like they do in, let's say, Holland, where you had the farmers rebellion basically mm-hmm. took over the, the upper house in the last elections. And Ireland passed that, I think it was an amendment to your constitution in 1959, and, and it made it a first past the post system is is it does that mean that you have a, a, a total lock on power with uh finney fowl finney gale and uh uh the uh, uh Sinn fein um well no this is the this is the interesting thing we have proportional representation um which means that small parties have an opportunity to have access to to get voted in um and the, i think there is an inherent conservatism in the irish political culture such that the ordinary voters are extremely slow to vote for, let's say, um, new parties. And I think it has to do with our our history. It has to do with the fact that voting patterns historically have been passed down through families and through generations, starting with the Civil War, um, where there was literally political parties. The political formation of Ireland was formed by the Civil War, uh, the sides in the Civil War. Um, so uh, it's remarkable to me that, you know, in 2023, we should still see these kinds of patterns having uh, an influence over Irish politics. But I think 
uh, I think one of the barriers to entry for a new party, first is the conservatism inherent in Irish voters, and second is the notion that small parties might be too radical or too sort of, um, you know, uh, I guess, wild card, too unpredictable, too dangerous, too fringe. And, and Irish people like to think that they're kind of with it and that they're uh, hip, so to speak, that they're not on the fringe. And so a new party can easily be dismissed as fringe if it doesn't play its cards right, if it's not careful the way it manages its self-image. You know, so immigration is an example. In Ireland, anyone who speaks out like, and, and raises concerns about immigration is just immediately labelled as xenophobic, as anti-immigrant, you know, as inhumane, as callous, as cruel. And, uh, and so there's no, there's no space for a rational discussion on these issues because anyone who raises their voice, anyone who dissents is immediately dismissed as a kind of loony. Um, and that's the pattern that you see in Ireland. And so uh, if a party were to uh, arise, it would have to overcome that kind of prejudice. Yeah, I can see. I can see where you're coming from there. I remember the, you know, the AFD in Germany. They were sort of plagued with uh, those sort of smears and characterizations in the media, and then they sort of had this house cleaning, uh, this house cleaning exercise that took place uh, before the, I think it was election before last, um, and then they they did very well, swept in, and I don't know, picked up a massive amount of seats, but they they had to purge their ranks of uh, certain types mm -hmm. of rhetoric and characters, but. It, it took a long time, and it's not an easy. It's not an easy sell. I, I can see how that would be so divisive uh, in Ireland in the current current climate. And I noticed something else, David, and you might comment on yeah. this. The mainstream press in Ireland seems to be lockstep supporting this new hate speech legislation. I mean, there's not, there's hardly any voices of dissent. Um, and is is that how big of an issue is that the with the state of the media? Uh, yes, um, it's not. It's not. A, it's not completely consensual. It's. It's, it's not. It, the consensus. The majority of journalists have either stayed quiet or expressed support for this. Um, but I saw some pieces in the Sunday Business Post um, against this, um, and you know there are a few journalists like David Quinn and the Sunday Independent who have written against this. But I would say that strongly worded, like say opposition by journalists is the exception, not the rule in Ireland. So I would agree that the majority of journalists have pretty much just ignored this or, or else uh, supported it, which is very remarkable to me, uh, you know, for the journalistic profession of all professions to support uh, this kind of, um, you know, hate speech law. Um, you know, you would expect journalists to understand the importance of freedom of speech. Oh, especially because they could be exposed or they could mm. fall foul uh, of this themselves. So that's, yeah, that's another big issue, I think, especially in, in, in Ireland as well. And also, um, just to kind of round off this discussion, I know we've got a couple minutes left. I know you've got to go. We appreciate mm. your time, um, mm. David, on this. Um, just on the, on the issue of, um, uh, on the issue of the the lawfare issue, and, and some people have criticized this as a type of a lawfare, 
and how the, in the in the UK as well, a lot of politicians have been knocked out of their parties. Uh, most recently, Andrew Bridgen, who is very mm. speaking out against pharma, he got uh, knocked out of the Conservative Party a couple of weeks ago uh, for a tweet uh, using the word Holocaust. Then you got Jeremy mm. Corbyn, uh, Chris Williamson, they kicked out of the Labor Party. Similar thing, uh, identity politics related, but it seems to me like there's all these tools that can be used, um, whether it's for this issue or that issue, uh, to basically knock out the establishment kind of using this to knock out political opposition. In America, we have a lawfare issue with Donald Trump. There's a number of cases against him trying to keep him from running. Um, Mm. Could you see the potential of this being abused periodically or no, sorry, in perpetuity in Ireland uh, in in a lawfare sense? yeah, I think I think it's possible. I mean, um, you know, if you pass a bill like this, then presumably you intend it to be actually applied and to give rise to prosecutions. And um, the point that I keep hammering home is that the, the whole concept of a hate offense is notoriously vague. And therefore, um, if it is applied, it will be completely vulnerable to political and ideological um, interpretations that are let's say, uh, deliberately, that are adversarial, that are partisan, and that favor a particular political position. Um, And even the way the categories, the protected uh, characteristics are defined is highly charged politically. You know, it's very determined by certain political issues and and agendas. So I I am fearful that this bill, if it passes, which is, is likely to pass, um, I am fearful that it will give rise to op- opportunistic form, opportunistic abuses of the law to silence political um, adversaries. Um, and I mean, I would point out that the 1989 Incitement to Hatred Act, which was already on the books since 1989, was already a very problematic act that included a hate speech offence. Um, but there were not that many prosecutions under it. And that's part of the reason why they, well, their stated justification or rationale for introducing a revised hate speech act. Um, but I think it's very disturbing and I think it'll probably go through. Uh, but I would say one of the most important things we have to do is educate citizens about what's going on. Um, because no matter what law passes, citizens still have their mind. They still have their soul. They still have their heart. And, uh, you know, they can put us in prison. They can fine us. But they, they, they can't enslave our mind if we resist. And so uh, mental and spiritual and moral resistance is always possible, even in a despotic regime. Um, and, and I would just mention, I, I, I know you said it was okay if I just mentioned my, my blog, that I write a lot about this stuff, the Freedom Blog. Um, so if any, any readers would like to check out my commentary on this, they can find it at davidthunder.substack.com. So anyway, that was a little plug from my blog. Oh, absolutely. We'll also put a link to that when we uh, will feature this interview up on 21stCenturyWire.com uh, and also on our video sharing platforms on Rumble, uh, Odyssey, and BitChute. Ladies and gentlemen, you can pick up this interview. I will feature it there as well. We'll put a link uh, to David's uh, Substack blog as well and also a link to his Twitter account uh, at David Thunder on Twitter. But uh, we really appreciate you joining us this week, David. It's a very important issue, and we've got to keep the conversation uh, going on this. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a pleasure.